to Art Dad on the Jam Crestman Podcast. Hello, everybody. We've got an exciting podcast this week with my buddy Aaron Perchett. Recently, uh, Post Malone covered an Aaron Perchett song on social media, and it's caused quite a stir. Uh, Aaron's obviously a celebrated member of the Canadian country music industry, and uh, he has a load of awards and accolades. And uh, I was just so thrilled to have him on the podcast this week. I hope you enjoy. All right, Aaron Perchett on the show. And what a 24 hours you've had, my friend. Tell me a little bit about uh, this uh, this tie to Post Malone and uh, Tyler and Tyler Yahweh. Yeah, uh, you know what? I was driving home from Kelowna back to uh, the Vancouver area, and I got a message from a buddy of mine named Paul McCallum, and he's uh, he's an ex CFL football player. And he's a kicker for BC Lions a couple times and uh, Saskatchewan Rough Riders and possibly another team. I'm not sure. Anyways, he's a buddy of mine. He sent me a message uh, the day before and uh, and said, you've got to see this post. And I didn't really think much of it at the time. Just thought, well, I don't know what this is, but I'll look at it when I get to Vancouver. So this was almost 24 hours before I took a look at this message. And... Uh, when I watched the message, originally what I thought was, oh, it's Post Malone. I, I recognized him right away because yeah, I'm a huge pretty, fan. Pretty uh, hard and to then, mistake that guy for somebody else. <clears throat> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> those, uh, those tattoos are a dead giveaway. And anyway, so I, I saw he was starting to sing, and he was singing, he sang a, a, a start of hold my, this Hold My Beer. So I didn't think it was mine. I just thought he was saying Hold My Beer. My buddy thought it was funny. And then he started singing the entire chorus of my song that I wrote back in 2015 called hold my beer. Yeah. And I was just absolutely amazed that he was singing this song that I had written so long ago. And, and ever since then I posted it. I didn't know what kind of a reaction I was going to get. I honestly, I thought I was just going to get people saying, Oh, that's cool. You know, but everybody it blew up my phone. Like it's still, still getting messages from people going, I can't believe Post Malone was singing your song. <laughs> and I still, I'm still beside myself too. Yeah, it's amazing. He, uh, he actually had the same vocal inflections and everything. Obviously he's um, a little under the influence in that video and having some fun, which uh, <laughs> is totally on brand for him. So no judgment, but yeah. the fact that, that that song obviously resonated with him. And, and for people who don't know, that song was never really worked as a single in the United States. It did obviously get some streaming love down there. Um, but he must have discovered it either by getting introduced to it by someone in the music community or potentially when he's been up here on tour. You know, he is a country fan, as I understand it. So he might have uh, listened mm-hmm. to, um, you know, JRFM when he was playing Vancouver. Um, I've reached out to his agent and uh, given her the backstory and sent her the video and I'm hoping to get some information from her as to where it came from and whether or not we might have an opportunity to yeah. do something or springboard this into something that could be really cool in terms of a collaboration. But man, what a well, what, what a gift! What a gift that just fell on your lap from the sky, from out of nowhere. And actually, I did find the the source. Well, one of the sources. Um, so a, a friend of mine, Katie Babcock, who lives in Toronto. She has, you know, almost a hundred thousand followers herself on Instagram. She, uh, her, her husband is in the music industry. They know Post Malone, so they were partying with him one night, and she showed him the the song. She played him the song, 
And I guess he got a real kick out of it, obviously. Um, and then I think, you know, originally, too, what we were talking about yesterday, I'm like, can you imagine if it was Justin Bieber was the one who said, oh, you got to yeah. hear this song uh, from when I was a kid? Because he would have been probably 13, 14, something like that, that back then. And uh, very likely that, you know, he could have played him this song that is from his childhood that made him laugh too. this hold my beer song. So, yeah, I, I think uh, Katie said uh, she said I played it for him at a party years ago and uh and he really liked it back then and so that might be a, a source of it but i'm definitely interested in hearing what his agent says about it yeah how cool is that just uh yeah. such a such a, a a great reminder for you that your music has uh continued to impact and um reach people beyond you know a level that you might have imagined you know it's pretty easy for yeah. us to get a little caught up in the canadian industry and and, and get very, uh, you know, sort of tunnel visioned about what we're doing up here. But we often forget there's a whole world out there that appreciates music. And these days, especially music just doesn't have the borders that it once did. And people can download or stream from anywhere on the planet. And this is one of those uh, yeah. proof in the pudding situations, you could say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you never know. Uh, like you said, 15 years ago, I wrote this song thinking, you know, I'll probably never record it. And then I thought, I'll probably never release it after we recorded it. And it was meant to be just a tongue-in-cheek fun song that, who knows, maybe an, uh, you know, an underground sort of uh, hit, you know, one of those sleeper ones that nobody heard on radio. And sure enough, it went to radio, did really well. But I don't think it got it to do. Mm -hmm. I and think I, it did I, with you the know, fans. I, I don't mean to say that as though I'm upset. Absolutely. But it, it, it never really got its due. And the reason why was because Big Wheel was such a big hit. It was a single release before Hold My Beer. Big Wheel was such a massive hit that uh, Hold My Beer came out of the charts and they were playing, the radio radio stations were still playing uh, Big Wheel so much that Hold My Beer never really got up the charts. And from what I understand, I, I read recently that it was it only went to 11. It actually didn't even crack, crack the top 10. And maybe that's just from one chart because I was told it went to number 10. But even still... It was never a number one hit, and yet has become my friends in low places, as you know. Right. Uh, it's, it is my anthem that everybody sings along to. And no matter what age group, uh, it, it seemed to affect all age groups back then, even little kids and little kids now, which is crazy. So 15 years later, it's still having the success. So it's interesting that Post Malone and, and Tyler Yahweh are, are singing along to it. And, and I'm pretty sure Tyler didn't know the song. He's just repeating whatever Post was singing. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it manages to spread across across the world, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of impact is, uh, you know, you can't, you can't calculate it, you can't orchestrate it. Those, the most magical no. moments in this business, we talked about this on your podcast you know, the most are, are on quarantines, the most magical moments in this business happen organically. Like they just happen. Right. Yeah. And, and this is one of those yeah. for sure. And, you know, you've had some other really cool milestones in the last few years, you know, celebrating your first ever uh, number one. Obviously, you know, Hold My Beer is one of those songs that that did go gold for you. So even though it didn't get the chart number that we hope yeah. to achieve, it did resonate well enough with the fans. But the milestones you've been able to celebrate at this point in your career, when, when, if you think about it from about 2009 to what, 2016, you were sort of outside the top 10 for the most part. And now yeah. you've just roared back with all this momentum. And, and how does that feel? 
it, at the time, especially when uh, when Dirt Road Enum came out and you know I did the Cross Canada uh, drove across Canada doing a uh, basically just a radio tour, stopping at all the radio stations. Um, you know, I wasn't again like we've talked about in the past. I don't put high expectations on things. I put high hopes on things. Um, but I, when it comes comes down to it, I was just going, you know what, it's been a long time since I've seen radio. And you and I discussed that. And you, you did actually push that, saying you should go. Um, because it was very important. I think the song spoke for itself. But when they were able to either see me again, you know, and their element, the radio people, and then also the ones that I hadn't met yet, and, and uh, they could put a real face to the voice, then that was really important. So, uh, but I was just going, this is cool. I get to go see the country again on my own and, and uh, stop in and see all these great people. Little did I know it made a huge difference in, in the traction of the song and, and the personality that they needed to put behind the artist. Um, because you can get songs from all kinds of artists and, and really not understand who that artist is. Not only just their images that you're seeing on Instagram, on, on social media and, and the, uh, the, promotional packages that they get sent to them but then they actually get to see the personality they get to see the the conscience that that artist has and who they are and they could see my sense of humor you know there was things like that uh so it made a huge difference but at the same time when when the single crossed over top 10 i was beside myself because at that time i was uh i was just before i turned 46 and never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be in this industry still relevant. I thought I'd still be in the industry playing shows and, you know, promoting the past uh, of my music. But when it came, uh, came down to having another top 10 single for the first time, and I think close to 10 years, uh, it was surreal. It was the surreal moments. And then there were some really great things that happened along the way, which we can get into later, but um, it was incredible. It was an incredible feeling. Sorry. And I know uh, talking to you, for example, uh, it was a really, really great feeling that you you were a part of that because we'd worked really hard together um, along with people like Louie and Jesse Shirk was a big part of that as well. There was a lot of uh, a lot of people that went into it that went, we did it. We, we did this. We made this right. comeback. Scott Cook, the producer. You know, it was uh, it was a big, big team effort. And when when we crossed over, I was just as happy for everybody else as I was for myself for actually being able to say, hey, I got a top 10 single and at 46 years old, 20 years in the industry. And uh, it felt like, OK, so I got a couple of years left still. <laughs> and uh, who knows what's in the future? I don't know. And I just let it all develop. Well, and, and the thing to remember, too, is a lot of artists who sort of um, obtain some level of equity and legacy they don't necessarily want to go out and do a radio tour again, but but the, the radio culture is such that uh, the top 20% of jocks and programmers stay put, but the bottom 80% are fluctuating all the time because it's usually young men right. and women who get a job in Saskatoon and then now they're in Calgary or you know Toronto and they're moving from market to market to market, working in different formats along the way a lot of times. And... So it's just so important for a guy who's been around as long as you have to get back out there, press the flesh, um, and remind them not only of your talent, but your authenticity and your sincerity and your sense of humor as a person. And everybody comes away from that going, this guy's super ingratiating and he's fucking good. You know, like he's great. He's exceptional. <laughs> but 
But if you grew up, say you're 26 years old, you might be thinking, oh, you know, Aaron Pritchett, he's, uh, he's been around a while. You know, radio and, and especially the industry in Canada, we've got a real uh, propensity to chase the new shiny thing. And you and I have talked about that a lot. Yeah. But, but it's really important that we continue to do that and give new artists the opportunity to develop a following and get some airplay while making sure that we are still uh, honoring and providing opportunity for artists who have made it, quote unquote, because they still have a lot to right. offer. And I remember this, mm -hmm. uh, the day that Dirt Road Inham went into the top five on BDS was the same day you were in Saskatoon opening for Garth Brooks for a bunch of sold out shows. And, and you gotta give people the backstory to that because this is another one of those situations that was purely organic, but it literally just fell out of the sky onto your lap. Yeah, I uh, I was absolutely amazed by what happened. <clears throat> and there's, a, there's one main reason why is because uh, before I even sang, before I sang in front of anybody, I was singing in the shower, if that, and uh, kind of keeping to myself vocally. I, I, I was a huge country music fan, originally started with uh, Randy Travis, and then Garth Brooks became an obsession for me. I loved his music. My wife and I both uh, at the time, Annette, Annette Prichette, never forget that. <laughs> Neither will anybody else. Um, any, yeah. So we were huge fans of Garth Brooks, and we 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 anticipated his next record coming out and played it and played it played the shit out of his records over and over tapes cds when they finally came out um and just massive fans so when that day came uh in april of 2016 when i was on a radio tour across canada promoting dirt road in him and i just wanted to go and meet everybody from radio and and uh you know all kinds of tv stops uh, I wasn't expecting this to happen. So Mike Mike McGuire, who was working then at Big Dog uh, Radio in Regina, called me a few days before. And I was driving from Lethbridge to somewhere. And uh, I think Medicine Hat to Lethbridge, or vice versa, Lethbridge to Medicine Hat. And he called me and he said, hey, uh, I got a question for you. Um, two days from now, you're coming into the station. Uh, we have two interviews to do that day with with people that are calling in. Uh, so the first one is uh, Father Mulcahy or whatever it was. Uh, remember, this is April. He goes, uh, yeah, he's, he's doing a bake sale. He's getting a head start for his Christmas bake sale, and he wants to do some promotion. So you can either interview him or Garth Brooks is calling in too. So you choose whoever you want to interview. <laughs> I was like, what? Garth Brooks? And he said, Mike's a huge fan too. So anyways, we got to talk to Garth Brooks live on the radio. And I only got – he said, you can only ask one question because – Garth is only giving us a certain amount of time. So we've, we've got to hurry with the question. So I, I thought I, for two days, two nights, I was losing sleep going, what am I going to ask him? I can't just ask him some random dumb question that he's answered a million times. So I thought, I know a good question. I'll ask him when, uh, when was that moment that he knew that uh, his song, uh, Friends in Low Places was going to be a smash hit. Because for me, I knew the moment when I realized that Hold My Beer was going to be such a massive, or, you know, very successful. Yes. Uh, and I can talk about that later. But 
uh, and, and I thought, well, I'll ask him a second question just for fun. And Mike McGuire said, well, ask him the funny question first, because it's just a joke. It's meant to be in passing. And then ask him your serious question. I said, okay. So I, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to ask him the joking one. And I said, uh, hey, can I, uh, can I send you along my agent's uh, contact information? You know, I'll give you 50 bucks. And, uh, and everybody laughed. And then Garth Brooks over the phone says, uh, hey, Aaron, I got a question for you. How would you like to open the shows for me in Saskatoon in June? And I was stunned, yeah. absolutely beside myself. And I, I had uh, my then tour manager, Kim, video me. And I just said, I want to hear myself and watch myself talking to Garth Brooks on the phone. That was the only intention. And you could see my face go white and then completely be red. And I could feel my my heart rate go, just break it up. And uh, sure enough, two months later, I'm, uh, I'm opening the show for Garth Brooks on his stage in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, or uh, in, yeah, in Saskatoon. And, and man, I, I still to this day, it's like, it's very similar to this, uh, how I felt yesterday and today still with Post Malone singing my song, being in that, arena i've been in that arena before i played in that arena before nothing was even close to this right. it's garth brooks stage you know i walked around that stage during the show i had to you know i couldn't just stand there and play and be all nervous and then walk off and forget about it i really tried to milk it as much as i was allowed and uh and even garth was amazing he he came into you were there he came into the uh the room several times and you know knocked and he answered the door and there's garth standing by himself and just saying hey catering's open <laughs> we're all down there if you want to come visit yeah. us like, what i even said to him one point don't you have people who have people to do this for you and he said nah i do everything myself and which is true uh but yeah it was an incredible feeling that i still uh, i look back on it now four years later actually four years later just a few days ago uh, and I can't believe that it still happened. And uh, I, I couldn't be more thankful to a, a more incredibly generous person like you. Right. Now, Garth was one of the major reasons why you took up the uh, the charge to get into this business. He was a huge influence yeah. on you. What are the things that you see in Garth that you also see in yourself? I mean, where do you see the synchronicities as far as personality, as far as styling, um, what is it about him that makes you go, I've got some of that in me? I think first and foremost is live show, connecting with your audience, making them feel, this is the way I've always said it, I've never heard him say it, but <clears throat> the way I try to put it is make that audience feel like they're on stage with you and that you're out there with them. And <clears throat> every show I do, whether there was two people in the audience, which I have played for in bars when I first started, uh, to... 20,000, doesn't matter. You have to try and connect with each and every one of those people in some way, as far away as they may be. And that's what he always did. He always tried to connect with his audience. Um, <clears throat> it's so funny because this, the second show that we did with Garth, he could barely talk. Remember that? He, he mm -hmm. barely had a voice. And to the point where, you know, and I missed my opportunity. I missed my chance to say to him, well, if you need a hand on stage, I know every lyric to every song of yours. Right. So I could help you out. I should have said that. But in hindsight, of course, you know, never got the chance. But nonetheless, uh, he can barely talk. And he said, you know what, though, in his scratchy, raspy, barely audible voice was the show must go on. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I got to get out there and sing.
sing or yell or do whatever I can. And you know what? The crowd is going to sing along to most of those songs anyway. So thankfully, they're here tonight and they're going to help me out. And it, it truly was. Uh, You've got a lot of that I've in always, you. I definitely you see, do. You see the world the same way as far as uh, how you view your fans and how much you value and appreciate them. And Yeah, and they, they paid the ticket. Even if I walk on stage and I can't sing, at least I'm trying. And uh, it's happened before where I've never canceled the show because I was was sick. And I've always said the show must go on. And I learned that playing in the clubs when I was young, in my 20s. Uh, the bar people didn't care. These people paid to see you play or, you know, you, you are their live jukebox. You have to go on stage. It doesn't matter if you're cat scratching on the side of a chalkboard you have to try and get out there and give her your all and I, I always did never have i had to cancel a show because i was sick and i never will you know the other way that you interact so effectively with your fans is on social media you know um you are one of the most prominent guys in terms of how much you update your stories how much you reply to comments and you reply to comments not just generically but with real context about how you know that person or how you hope to see them again. And hey, it's been a while since I've seen you in London. And it's it, it just takes an incredible amount of what must be a real authentic tie to the desire to build real relationships with your fans. Yeah, that, first and foremost, the fans are, are what creates our business. Um, I give radio full credit too for giving them uh, the platform to listen to the music for sure. And now we have all the streaming services and, and digital downloading services, which is great. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is they don't have anybody to cater to if, if there are no fans listening or watching. So ultimately I owe everything I am as an artist to the fans. And, uh, I've always said that no matter what uh, I try to, Try to. I always try to keep communication with them. I've never had to cut and paste a message and just randomly, you know, uh, inserting the message in a in a uh, in a thank you. It's always something that's very much more personal, right. and I never repeat myself, you know, exactly all the time. I'm very thankful to who they are and what they do have done helped me out with my career. So um, keeping them engaged during, especially during this pandemic. Uh, was important. And it was really funny because I was, for the first few days that I quarantined, um, I was thinking, how, how can I keep in their, in their face and, and, and entertain them? Because I'm going to miss that. It just sounds like it's going to be here for a while. I can't just sit by, sit back and be quiet. I have to entertain them, period. Uh, I wasn't making any money off of it. Nothing like that was happening at all. Um, you know, unfortunately, because I mean, the bank account does take a bit of a hit. Uh, but ultimately, it, what mattered most was to entertain those people who I knew were in the same situation I was and sitting at home and not being able to go out, not being able to have that entertainment factor. But luckily, during this, unlike back in uh, 1918, I believe, uh, when the pandemic was here last time in, in such full force, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have social media. They didn't have the ability to, for you and I to do this right. like we are over a screen. It was just a dream back then by somebody, uh, science fiction. But now we do, and it's not only just watching me on a screen. They can communicate. Mm -hmm. They can type in messages. I can type a message back. I can bring them on live if I want, you know, if, if they're willing to do that too. So 
it was uh, it was something that I found really intriguing, very interesting, and and I wanted to try and engage that audience as much as possible, and 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 for no monetary value other than to just keep them entertained, and and have them uh, maybe have a put a smile in the face, maybe make them laugh during something that was was very much uh, a, a very negative situation. So I I feel like we're doing that because I'm right. continuing the show still, obviously. And uh, it's really important. Bottom line is it's super important for me to be able to connect with the audience like I always have tried to and uh, give them a little something to, you know, maybe a, an hour of, of uh, something to laugh about and, and, and smile about and and play a song or two for them as well and have guests that they never expected to see. So things yeah. like that, like yourself, having you on and getting your insight was really important for me to not only have other Canadian country music artists other musicians, period, actors, athletes, but I wanted people in the industry, and you're the person closest to me in the industry, um, that have uh, give their opinions, give their uh, side of the story of what was happening, but also um, giving some real good insight on on not only the industry, but how to work through this pandemic. Right. <clears throat> and that that's the other interesting thing is, luckily enough, you had maybe your biggest touring year in a decade. Well, it was your biggest touring <laughs> year in over a decade Ever. last year <laughs> thankfully right under the wire over 80 shows two massive legs of the out on the town tour one in the spring yeah. one in the fall um so you did get a chance to go out and tour really hard before all this came down which is great but you are also infamous for being one of those guys who will work every night of the week if we can fill the shows. You're insatiable yeah. when it comes to connecting with your fans. And you and I have had plenty of these conversations in private, but you've also you've always said to me, hey, listen, if it's a Tuesday night and you can find a stage, uh, production gear and a microphone and people, I wanna, I wanna perform. So we'll go out and do these tours and you'll play 23 consecutive shows in a row, which is insane. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about the regime you have as an artist in order to maintain that level of output because it's a lot. Yeah, uh, I learned <clears throat> I learned early on how not to tour <laughs> uh, because it was basically balls to the wall, partying every night, getting up super early the next morning, trying to sing at a, a radio station or a TV interview that I had somewhere, um, and. And it really tired me out. And over time, um, I decided, you know, I, I need to, as much as this is a lot of fun and I have access to, you know, uh, party time, I don't need it. What I need to do is I need to stay healthy mentally, physically, emotionally, everything. So that when, when I get on stage, they get 100% of me. Right. And when I go to that radio station or I go to that TV show or I do a special appearance somewhere, they get 100% of me. They don't get some, you know, tired, exhausted, dehydrated, you know, puffy looking dude who they're, they were thinking that they were going to get much more out of. Um, so then when it came time to uh, do the tours that we did last year, I was very eager to do as many shows as possible and, and as many days as needed. Uh, when we did the first one, it was 35 shows in just over 40 days. And we only had a few days off in a row. Everything was either one day off in between a big stretch or a big, long, long stretch with two days off, which was very nice. But at the same time, 
unnecessary because I was ready to go more if needed. And what I'm finding is that when I take care of my health, when I take care of myself mentally, physically, emotionally, every aspect, um, I can, I get, I feel like I get better with uh, time moving on and, and getting on stage and going by show 28. I've got as much energy as I did in show four and my voice is stronger and everything's healthy and it's all working the way it should work. And they get 100% of you. And I can do that for two hours a night. No problem. Pour a sweat, you know, drink a couple beer on stage, have some fun. As long as I'm eating right, you know, that that's a major aspect of it too. Drinking lots of water. The next day I can get up in the morning after having five hours sleep, uh, and w which you should normally be fully exhausted after doing that much exercise, really, um, exerting that much energy. I go to the radio station or go to the TV station and, and I would be able to sing great. Like I, you know, had nine hours sleep and hadn't done a thing the day before. So right. it's, it's really, a, it's really all about your health in all aspects and just taking care of yourself. And you, I could go forever. I was like the, the energizer bunny just kept getting stronger and stronger. It's amazing. Like, man. No, like no end. You sort of um, exemplify the old adage of starve your distractions to maximize your passions, right? Yeah, and yeah. Um, and just to break down your regime, so I know you're you're a guy who does put fitness forefront. You know, I know you're hard on yourself a lot on that front. You're always oh, I don't work out but like you're always in great shape. <laughs> when you're on the road, you're very vigilant about getting in the gym, and you also um, uh, I remember how much you would eat coconut oil. Like coconut oil to keep yep. your to keep your throat uh, lubricated and also for the uh, the antiviral antibacterial benefits of it, right? So I've seen you take like mm -hmm. a big scoop, a three finger scoop of coconut oil and just pound it down, and you know, yeah. ideas like that or concepts like that, you know, if if they're effective for you, there's a good chance they might be transferable to somebody else. So tell us a little bit about your day to day regime. What time do you try and get up after going hard till two in the morning? you know, entertaining the night prior to? Well, if I didn't have anything uh, required the next day, if I didn't have radio appearance or TV appearances or anything like that, uh, I would sleep in as much as possible, which is not it, not the easiest thing to do on a bus if you're rolling right. after the show the night before. Um, but typically, you know, I'd get a pretty good sleep, take maybe a, a gravel. Um, those help me sleep, the ginger gravels. Uh, those help me sleep and promotion, obviously, on a bus. But... Um, I would definitely try to get up as early as possible. Usually hit a gym if we're at a hotel uh, that hopefully would have one. Um, not all of them do. Go to the ho go to a hotel gym, and uh, and then have a meal the next uh, in an hour after that or so. Um, but it was really about <clears throat> making sure you eat properly, obviously. And I I was eating uh, keto, so I was doing the keto diet right. or whatever it might be called. So uh, it was it was high fat no carbs, no sugars. Um, so that helped, but I was, I was doing that. I was doing the coconut oil and, uh, the hard stuff and you'd put it a little bit in your mouth and let it kind of go down your throat. But then I, I put it all over my body too. And it's really, really great for your skin. And it's one of those things where you can rub your hands for as long as you want. And it's really slippery and oily. And then take them off and about five minutes later, you don't even feel it. It's yeah. gone. So it's really so crazy. True, but yeah. the other thing, absolutely. The other thing too was uh, a thing called Ninjom. 
and it's uh, it's basically a Chinese remedy. Uh, it's almost pure honey, um, and it's really, really thick. It's almost molasses thick. But I would take a teaspoon of that before I went on stage. And the other thing that I did regularly, and I don't know whether or not this helped or not, but it sure was good to do <laughs> for me, uh, fireball shot. And right. funny enough, it's a whiskey and it's a cinnamon whiskey. But at the same time, I really felt like it opened me up. It wasn't so much that it cleared my throat. That was the ninjom. But the uh, the shot of whiskey actually seemed to open things up and relax instead of being all tight. And and uh, and then water. Water is the key element to life, period, I think. And uh, I think that the amount of water that we had available to us, which was good, uh, on the bus and even when at, we're at shows, we had lots of it provided. Water was the key for all of us to get through uh, the way we did without, you know, without feeling overly bloated, without feeling like, you know, we're tired and sluggish. Uh, water definitely helped. And we went to water more than we went to, you know, drinking uh, a martini on the bus after the show or a beer. So uh, that was kind of the, the key thing. And sleep was obviously a huge uh, a huge thing, but the way I was eating, the way I was uh, not really drinking that much and keeping all the water going, I could sleep four or five hours a night and still feel really rested the next morning, vocally and physically. Incredible, man. I know you uh, play some hockey with the NHL alumni. And yeah. uh, do you think that your exposure to professional athletes, even though these guys are you know, they're, they're having a little more fun these days than they did when they were really in the prime of their career. Do you think your exposure to their tactics, strategies, and habits helps you sort of develop your own regime? Because you're like, all right, if I want to take this seriously and do this till I'm in my 60s, I can't fuck around. You know, yeah. you've got a living, breathing example of that when you're working with these NHL alumni guys. Well, that's just it. I got asked to be on the alumni about four years ago. <clears throat> I've got my little card and everything. I actually have a membership card for the Vancouver Canucks alumni, as well as uh, playing with an NHL alumni team, mostly back east. But we travel all over Canada for, you know, four or five games uh, every time, every session. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of funny because when they were playing, they were all on regiments that were, you know, timed. They had sleep patterns, they had eating requirements, they had practice times, stretch times, the post-practice uh, workouts, all these different things. When they finished, a lot of them were so, uh, their muscle memory was so great from doing what they did for their entire lives that they didn't have to stay too much in shape and stay too um, regimented to their uh, workouts and eating habits and anything like that. So some of them put on weight, but to see them go on the ice after, even at in their 50s, 60s, some of them, even 70s, some of them, uh, and play the level of hockey that was still well above my level <laughs> at you know that time and, and was pretty incredible. The thing was, is that it's funny. Cliff Ronning is a very good friend of mine. He played in the NHL with uh, the Canucks in St. Louis and uh, Nashville. Uh, the Islanders, he played on like seven teams. Anyways, he's a good friend of mine. And he has said to me before, because I, I when I work out, I go all in. And when I stop, I usually stop. As you know, I, I, I can either be one way or the other. Uh, he said, when I was working out a lot, he was saying, how do you do it? Like we're close to the same age and why would you bother doing that? I said, because I'm still working, you know, right. I'm still, I'm still in the league. I'm still playing. I'm yes. still a current, uh, <clears throat> still a current player. 
but I think even after that, I still want to stay in shape. And I, I think even after I retire and hang up the skates, um, hopefully that never happens. But uh, if it if it does, then I think I still need to stay in shape. I don't mm. want to get out of shape. I don't want to fall into a pattern where uh, life gets really easy in the way of, of um, you know, eating habits change. I think I'll always have good eating habits. I think I'll always drink a lot of water. I think I'll always get a lot of sleep. And uh, ultimately, no matter what, I want to stay um, as physically fit as I can. It's not about looks for me. I don't really care about the looks. I love to feel like I, when I look in the mirror, that's all that matters to me. And I want to feel happy with myself and also have the energy to get up and go anywhere at any time. Um, and that's also a mental health issue too, right? You've, you got to keep yourself uh, as mentally, physically fit as possible. So mentally fit as possible. And one way of doing that is just is trying to get as much exercise as possible. Right. I think the, um, the routine of a regime and, and what that forces um, gets you to sort of like encounter real adversity every day. So yeah. if you're going to crank out you know, a couple hundred push-ups or whatever you're doing or an eight-mile run, then it forces you to tap into something that you are definitely going to need to tap into at some point throughout that day to get through another uh, proverbial mountain, right? It just might be mental mm-hmm. or emotional. And I know this is probably tough for you to talk about, but I know you've had your your fair share of hurdles in that realm, you know, where you've had, you know, a very difficult life. Things haven't been easy for you at all. You've somehow taken that, turned it into inspiration and the desire to encourage uh, other people. And you've also kept yourself on track. But there have been times, because you're human, where you've probably been very close to giving up. And, uh, and I think it's important for people to understand that even as successful as you've been, those doubts still creep into your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And... You know, what's funny is that <clears throat> things like this Post Malone thing happening, uh, Garth Brooks happening, my career happening in general, what a lot of people don't know, we've discussed this, you and I, in, in private, uh, what a lot of people don't know is where I came from and how much adversity I was put thrust, thrust into when I was a kid. And I didn't have any choice. You know, there was no matter that uh, for me, it, it didn't matter uh because I, I couldn't make a decision at two, three years old um, with all the things that were happening around me. They just happened. Um, <clears throat> so with those memories that I will have forever, uh, I always had to, I always thought in my, in my mind that I have to, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, what happened is in the past. I can't do anything about it. Right. And I've got to push through this and do what's in my heart. And what's in my heart was to entertain people. And uh, it wasn't a way of, for me of coping. It's no, it wasn't any mechanism that my brain was going, okay, here's the way to avoid uh, some serious mental issues with this. Mine was, okay, you've gone through it. That's, there's nothing you can do about it. Let's get to what type of person you really are. And I, I just really am a, an entertainer at heart. And I want to make people smile. I want to make them feel good. I want to help them escape from what right. I had to go through for so many years. Um, and uh, and that was really, that's kind of my calling. That's really what uh, my, my life's purpose is, is to do that and help other people that I understand the, the position that they've been in. And definitely when times were uh, tough with my, with my uh, career, you know, 
first and foremost was my personal life. And I got to make sure that that's in order, in order for my career to be successful. But when those things were out of my, uh, out of my reach for, uh, for, for changing with the career, with what I, you know, between 20, well, 2009 to 2014, 2015, uh, I really had no choice whether or not I was going to get airplay. I just had to try and record the best song I could. Clearly I wasn't, but I had thought at that point, my career was done. And you know what it was like. We were working together, obviously, uh, back then. So uh, when I when I kind of came to the realization, well, I guess I'm I'm finished with this career, and it was because of the the uh, the support that I had from yourself, from my family, from my friends. People convinced me that hey, you're not done. Go and give it another shot. And it was it was very depressing in a way. But I was coming to the reality that, well, I guess I have to find a job. I mean, I haven't had a job since I was a job job since I was 19. Um, and what did I do back then? Pump gas. Maybe if they're still hiring full, full uh, service attendants, I might have a job. Um, but uh, it was at that point where I was like, I can't stop doing this. This is in my blood. It's It's something that I've... I've always done when I was a kid, my report cards always said is a really great student, but if he could learn how to focus a bit more and not have to be the entertainer, then maybe he'd do much better at school on every report card when I was a kid. Um, and it was just something that was a natural thing for me. So I, I, I had to go, well, this is all I know how to do. This is all I want to do. And this is all I should be doing. So I have to find a way and together, again with your yourself and uh louie and, and david and everybody at the team and big star and big uh, and uh, invictus as well as scott cook and the great writers that we got to choose these songs from everything changed and got back to somewhere where i'd been before and right. i always say that you know with <clears throat> with proper perseverance and with with um being tenacious and sticking to my guns and knowing what i know and and knowing that i can only do one thing well um that uh, i had to keep going and and i was you know i was one percent that i was uh, one of the one percent that got lucky or not got lucky but worked hard and and had a career in the first place with all the hits back from 2003 to to uh, 2009 and then i was one percent of the one percent who still gets to have a career with current relative songs pushing 50 years old so that was just staying as positive as possible and having the uh, an amazing support system yeah, and you, you've also, um, I mean, you endured substantial abuse when you were a kid, and, and, and yeah. you really navigated some tough times, but how, <clears throat> how have you held, and, and I think this is really an important discussion applicable today, how have you held at bay the temptation to identify with victimhood status, which, by the way, nobody would argue you're not entitled to, given your past, given your upbringing, how have you kept that at bay in order to continue to push forward and maximize your potential? Because I think one of the most dangerous things about, about victimhood status, and, and this has nothing to do with the individual or what they've experienced, um, it's like you, you're probably entitled to claim that status, but does it make your life better? That's always the question. As you're moving forward, does it... Does it give you the, the, an advantage to have built-in excuses, you know, or a built-in go-to excuse to go, well, the reason I'm like this or I failed at these four or five things is because of this. 
right? Right. And and my assertion is, it's not. It's not good for you. It's not good for you to just have a ready-made excuse for everything you come up against in life because you don't have the ability then to really tap into self-evaluation, you know, and and go, well, hold on a sec, maybe I didn't get that job because of this built-in excuse. Maybe I didn't get that job because I didn't prepare or I didn't work hard enough or my references didn't pan out, you know, and and I just feel like that's such a a dangerous slope for people to, to slide down, but you've been able to master your mindset to keep that at bay and how have you done that? How have you regimented the temptation to just blame your failures on something that was out of your control rather than take ownership and figure out a way to navigate around them? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've never been asked that question and it's a great question. Uh, I can say first, first and foremost, I never looked at myself as a victim. Um, I understood what happened. It was a situation. I would say, you know, the, the, the culprits, that did to me what they did, whether it was uh, sexual abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, any of that. Um, I never looked at myself as being, as blaming myself. And unfortunately, with that happening to majority of the people that it does happen to or has happened to, um, they're taught and trained to believe that they have caused this, that they're the reason why. And, and, and the most unfortunate part is moving ahead in the future and, and with their own lives and trying to create something for themselves and never having enough confidence in themselves to be able to, to create some great, great things for their lives and for those around them. And it's usually because of that that uh, there are a lot of people who become um, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the victims and they think of themselves that way. Absolutely. Um, and I don't blame them. I don't blame those people for, for, uh, feeling that way about themselves because it, it, you know, it wasn't their fault. They are definite victims in those circumstances, but I think it's not, it's just not the same for everybody. So for me, it was always, okay. Even at a young age, like we're talking, we're talking two years old when I was two and thinking, this is wrong. I know this is wrong. I'm never going to have this happen to me in my life, you know, as an adult, as I got older, I was never going to repeat those patterns. I was never going to, you know, um, be a physically abusive person, a sexually abusive person or mentally abusive person. Um, And I, I lived with a lot of it, like every aspect of every person that I came across, every adult did that. But for some reason, um, in my case, not that I'm some superhero, not at all, just I'm a different personality and I didn't take it as though I'm being victimized here. Uh, I took it as being, okay, this is a serious hurdle and I'm, I'm, I got better things to do in my life than to worry about this and to let it get to me and affect my career. Um, whether I didn't even know it was music at the time, for example, I was just going to try and create a family and do whatever I could to, to help feed them and house them and and be able well help feed them and house them along with my wife and along with Jesse as well with Mason um, and those things were the the important things to me to to make sure that mentally I'm, I'm uh, able to do that and again not just put everything in the past I'm fully aware of what happened and how it happened why it happened is another question but I'm fully aware of it and I can look at it and go 
All I got to do is create a positive world for myself and in turn, let that be thrown out into the universe, uh, that, that amount of positivity and that positive energy. And uh, hopefully it'll just keep coming back and I'll be able to affect some other people that way. And yeah, believe me, this is uh, when, when the book is written and people will be probably pretty shocked by a lot of the stories. I've told you some of the stories and you were shocked. Uh, but um, when, when that time comes where people can read the story about what happened to me in my life and the, the, for me to manage to, uh, you know, it's, some people say, well, you got lucky. Well, I don't think so. I think I worked really bloody hard to get to where I've gotten and continue to go. I, I do have trust issues with people, I have to admit. I've, I've included you in that at one point just because I, I didn't know who to trust in life, period. Fair enough. You know, I, 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 took, I took on everybody because I thought you have the worst, not you, but the world has the worst intentions for me. And I have to push through with whatever power I can. And giving into that negativity was was actually me showing that i was uh, you know be, being the victim uh you know acting as the victim instead of going wait go with your gut instinct and then when i did you know we ended up working back together for example uh as well as uh making the decisions that we have together but um those decisions that i felt were the right decisions to make and went with my instincts and instead of having that little voice in the back of my head saying no 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 no! don't trust anyone don't trust anyone because you you've got history and uh i, I pushed on through that and and here we are still today and again i, I think this is going to be a very interesting story for a lot of people to read and hopefully hopefully people do whenever that does happen where they can read the story and there's a lot of other stories along with it too that are funny that are very entertaining but uh, I think the shocking part of, of uh, parts of the book will be very eye-opening for a lot of people, but I want it to be a positive message so that they can move on with their lives and go, hey, you know what? He put up with a lot of shit in his life and managed to come through pretty, pretty well at the end of the day. Yeah, you, you found an amazing way to process your adversity and turn it into something very special that not only has benefited you directly and your family, and I want to talk about the boys and their projects, but yeah. also um, uh, you have the ability to inspire other people to look at their own situations and their own adversity differently. Do you follow Will Smith on Instagram at all? Fresh, uh, no, Fresh I don't Prince? think I do. Yeah. So yeah. He, he had a really great video about two years ago um, where he, and I'm not sure if he came up with this line or uh, borrowed it from somebody, but essentially the message was, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. So it's not your fault yeah. that you've encountered what you've encountered or endured what you've en endured. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility as to how you're going to take that energy and process it moving forward. And you know, your boys are incredibly successful. They both got bit, or they all three of them got bit by the music bug, you know, yeah. and you've, um, you've been able to foster and nurture them along and, and uh, help them as well. And uh, talk a little bit about what's going on in their lives right now. Well, Jordan is the oldest. He's turning 30 this August. That is crazy. Fact. I know, believe me, it's really hard to believe, but it's happening. Um, so, He's the oldest. He was born in 1990, and I wasn't really in the music. I wasn't playing with a band back then. I was actually when he was born. I wasn't singing at all. Uh, so 
nobody in my family really had the music bug too much. My sister sang a bit. My dad sang when he was a kid with a garage band kind of thing, but he never, uh, he's a longshoreman. So he just worked, 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 worked and partied. That's all he did. So, um, <clears throat> there was no real music in my family. My grandmother did as well. Uh, my mom's mom. Um, but no serious music industry related anything. So when Jordan was born, uh, and I got into music, I always wondered, you know, is he going to play hockey? He's probably going to play hockey because I, I, you know, hockey's my first true love, right? And uh, so we put him into hockey as he got older, and, and he liked it, but it wasn't that passion that I had. I, you know, I slept and breathed and eat. I would eat hockey, anything. It was in my blood. And uh, anyways, <clears throat> when he was uh, 11 years old, for his 11th birthday, I got him a guitar. I thought, yeah, well, I'll just throw this out. Either he'll play it or he won't. It's fine. And for uh, from then until who knows when, for four hours every day, didn't matter where he was, he always had his guitar with him. And it, for four hours a day, he played his guitar and practiced his, his guitar. And between that and swinging a golf club for about three hours a day, every day. Uh, so he got really, really amazing at both. So Jordan ended up uh there's kind of a funny story so dave faber from faber drive which was a very big canadian pop band for yeah. several years dave faber texted me one day after i was doing the anthem at the canucks game and jordan came with me and we we're out for dinner just after the game and dave faber texted me and said hey do you know any guitar players in vancouver i'm looking for one i said well my son plays but i don't know how good he is i had no idea but i said oh you know let him try out and dave said well you just being a proud father so uh i said well just let him try out for fun he's he's 16 years old or something like that 17 uh just let, let him try so he did reluctantly and uh dave called me right after jordan went to his house and played guitar for him and sang a bit and he said holy fuck i can't believe your kid's so good he was by far the best out of all these guitar players and, and he goes he sings too he's an amazing singer and he's only 17 and he had 27 guys try out for the band jordan was by far the best which was great so anyways he toured with favorite drive for about seven years now he's uh got a duo going with his girlfriend danielle marie and they're known as cross parallel uh, i won't make the next story so long but um so they're they're recording a bunch of music now and on their own and they're just you know putting stuff out there and there's they're both amazing singers and songwriters too and great musicians um so my two younger sons brayden and mason brayden's gonna be 24 in september uh, mason's gonna be 18 in september and he graduates tomorrow as a matter of fact so i'm pretty excited about that uh, so they have a duo called uh atlantis, atlantis one, one. Yeah, Atlantis one and a man. I got to tell you, I'm, and with Cross Parallel and Atlantis one, they both have uh, music on streaming services, Spotify, Apple or uh, uh, yeah, Apple Music, etc. iTunes for downloading. Um, but uh, they have about 18, 19 songs, something like that available right now on uh, on iTunes and, and all those platforms. So they're creating their own stuff. This is the coolest thing is that. They're writing their own stuff. It's all real stuff that has to do with their lives. There's nothing in it that's made up or just some random stupid story. Uh, no, nothing against stupid stories. I've written several. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
<clears throat> they recorded all themselves, everything from start to finish they have created, which is an absolutely amazing thing. When you listen to their melodies, it's like, how did you come up with those melodies? It's just crazy. It's so good. So their, their future is bright and they want, that's what they'll do. All three of them are just going to continue doing music. And uh, Mason was the one who kind of came into something into the music industry without, you know, any foreshadowing. He, uh, he basically was, uh, Braden came and lived with me on Gabriola when I was living there. And he uh, lived in the studio that we had just built uh, for a podcast, actually, that hasn't come around to fruition yet. But uh, anyhow, so Braden was living in the studio, started doing some recording in the studio on his own. And Mason wasn't, he was interested, but he wasn't really into it. He didn't think he could do. He went through a breakup on New Year's Eve, 2018, 2018, January 1st, 2019. He and Braden are in the studio recording everything under the sun it was unbelievable and just it gave him that outlet to tell stories and he had a lot of stories still telling a lot of stories even at 17 16 years old so now here they are they're uh, atlantis one and they've got uh, a lot of really really great music on on uh, on all the platforms going out there so i think i think all of them still have quite bright futures and they're still pretty young so it's not any uh any rush for them so you've been in the game now for 20 years at a very high level. Uh, you have, your children are all in the business. What What's a common mistake that you see or something that maybe is being overlooked these days because of of the, uh, the benefits and detriments, but the benefits especially of say social media and streaming. What do you feel that artists are perhaps overlooking or not paying as much attention to as they should be these days? Um, and maybe it's got nothing to do with, with the fact that you can engage people on socials. But is there something from your era that you feel is being missed by people who are launching careers in 2020? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and maybe it's an old school style of, of uh, doing things. But I played the clubs for 10 years. I got that firsthand experience playing like i said to two people on a tuesday night at gabby's country cabaret in langley which is now shut down sadly um and my mom was one of the people in there <laughs> so funny she's sitting there by herself having a drink sitting across from me while i was playing some other random guy is sitting at a table just not caring at all i'm up there giving her but at the same time not i'm starting to you know slack a bit and my mother looks at me and goes does this all i can see her is doing this so i went over to her afterwards and said, what were you doing what's wrong like you had too much to drink she said uh i was telling you to smile smile when you're on stage anybody can walk in doesn't matter this guy's here he's watching you smile make it look like you're having a good time i was like you're totally right so i i, I took that but anyways it was the experience that i got from playing a lot of live shows to being like i said before you're the live jukebox you play what they want to hear or else you don't play again. And, uh, and you don't get paid as well back then. So <clears throat> I learned, I got that stage experience. I got that crowd interaction experience. I learned that, you know, every now and then you can do your own little creation of things and do variations your own way. And then you develop who you are as an artist and an image and all those different things where it's not just, you have a great voice, you look decent, we're going to put you into the studio. We're going to give you a bunch of songs and uh, away you go. Um, 
there's there's probably a little too much of that now because people look you know they they basically scour on the internet for the best talent possible and then they try to put them into a situation that they're actually ultimately very uncomfortable with and actually you can talk to somebody in particular who doesn't deny this and is an amazing amazing artist now is jojo mason where <clears throat> and talk about adversity in, in one's career jojo's had it all but one of his biggest hurdles was and he admitted to it he said i never played in the clubs i never got that experience i went to a party met dan swinemer he took me into the studio before i know it i've got a song on the radio i've never been on stage i've never played with the band i don't know what the hell to do so i went that's the problem with the industry as much as he's become a really great artist that puts on a great show and has really great songs it took him a long time to get comfortable before he went on stage. And I don't know if he still does, but he did for a long time. He puked. He had to puke because he's like, I can't hold these nerves and just blah. And, and, and then he'd go on stage and scared. And, and people know that it's like, you know, a, a bear senses you, it runs into you in the woods. It knows you're scared and it, you know, could attack you. Right. But the people know that they sense it. And, but with me, I think, I think one of the, I remember one moment in particular with you, uh, back when you were working with uh, Ron Sakamoto, we were playing at Cowboys in, in old Cowboys in uh, in Calgary. You and Ron were there, and uh, <clears throat> for some reason, I, I I had so much stage experience already, but I you know my interaction with crowds was okay. People are listening to my songs, so I just got to play my songs, I guess, and then come off stage. That night at at uh, Cowboys, you you guys were there. You were there. And you were the one I talked to afterwards. Uh, I had one hell of a night. It was great because I interacted with the crowd and, you know, they just ate out of the palm of my hand. And that was the night you came up to me afterwards and said, we're getting you on the Shania tour or the Kenny Chesney tour, one of the two. And I was like, what? And I think it was because of the fact that you saw that not only, you know, my songs went over great. It was the fact that I could put on a show. I could interact with the crowd. You know, and I related to them, which is the most important thing for an artist to do. It's it's one thing to try and connect with them, but if you can't relate with your crowd, they're not coming back. Right. And that was uh, that was the start of it. I think that very night was the start of my confidence level on stage, growing, leaping over where it was before. And that was the night that you you saw it. Ron saw it. I think everybody kind of saw it. Even the band felt it. Yeah, and the, and, the uh, next time you played the market, it was in the Saddle Dome, sold out with Toby Keith. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember that. That was pretty cool. I think yeah. um, uh, I think Mal Malcolm Gladwell always says you got to get your ten thousand hours in. And so what I'm hearing from mm -hmm. you is you need that foundational base so that you can understand how to rebuild rapport with the audience when things go wrong because things will <clears throat> go wrong at times you know your oh, ears yeah. are going to die or you know you're going to break strings on your guitar and you need to figure out how you're going to navigate those adversities on the fly and it's yes. really hard to do that i mean the, the good thing about jojo mason i'm glad you mentioned him is he's closed the gap with charisma and then of course yeah. now he plays more and more, and so he's getting better and better and better. But he always had something very special from the moment he first got on stage. And with you, I've always felt like you have this, this infectious energy whereby you're feeding off the audience, but you're also feeding them. And it's why people can't yeah. necessarily put a finger on it. It's intangible to them, but they need to come back to see you. And of all the artists I've worked with, 
you are one of the artists who people have seen, you know, I'll, I'll run into somebody who's at their fourth Aaron Pochett show for the year and they'll have driven, <laughs> you know, eight hours in some cases. And it's like, <laughs> how do you explain that? Right? Like they just, they obviously yeah. love the music and they love you as a person, but there's something they're getting from that, that energy exchange that maybe they're not even aware of, or it's a subconscious level, but it's definitely there. I think ultimately what it comes down to is they, they realize that I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the music. I'm a fan of the artists. I'm a fan of the fans. And <clears throat> when you do that, when I, when I, it's an honest thing. It's not something that I'm pushing that I'm trying to be. It's just there. I'm so happy that they're there. And like I said, what it comes down to bottom line, make those people feel like they're on stage with you and you're partying with them in the crowd. And that once you do that, then, uh, nothing else matters they will come back they will travel eight hours they'll travel i had people come out from saskatoon um actually east of saskatoon to uh to be in the uh hold my beer video because they they didn't even know hold my beer was going to be a single they just you know the 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 uh the request was out there for people to be in the video they drove all the way out from saskatoon to be in about nine hours of shooting for this video. And then they turned around, drove back, you know, and I thought that's pretty cool that they did that. It's amazing. We already had so many people in Vancouver and, and they drove all the way out from Saskatoon to Vancouver. And I thought this is cool. Like, because I related to them because I, I, you know, was able to connect with them, but have that relatable factor where people want to come back to the shows because they know they have as much fun as I do on stage and they feel like I'm in the crowd with them. Right. And uh, hold my beer is a great way to it's a great way to wrap this up because that's where we started. Yeah. <laughs> um, so cool that 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 Post Malone and and Tyler Yahweh went ahead and covered this. I mean, it's in the back seat. Yeah. They're obviously feeling good, but it's so cool. Uh, tell us a little bit about the origin story for that song because you wrote that with Derek Rattan and Mitch Merritt, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Derek and Mitch and I were in Nashville writing at Derek's. Uh, I think it was Sony ATV uh, was his company at the time he was signed with the publishing company so we were in this really great building where all these crazy famous songs have been written and uh anyway so we we're in this one room too but we were trying to we're throwing around ideas or hook lines of what we wanted to write that day so derek would be like tomorrow's a day okay no that doesn't work how about uh i love you still no we just weren't having any uh success coming across with our our titles that we each had uh and then it popped into my head this, I hadn't even thought about it until this day. It was a slogan on the back of a t-shirt. And I thought, this is the dumbest thing. I can't say this. And I was this close to not saying it, to never mentioning this in this songwriting session. And then uh, we just kind of sat there silent and I go, what about uh, hold my beer while I kiss your girlfriend? And Derek just instantly was like, yep. That's what we're writing. So we started writing it, wrote it in about two and a half hours. And afterwards, we're all laughing, going, this is so stupid. This is such a crazy, dumb song. Nobody's People might actually be offended by this, really. And then uh, we got back to Vancouver, tried it out uh, in Langley, actually. My mom and my grandmother came to this little acoustic show that, that Mitch and I were playing in Langley. And I thought, oh, no, my grandmother's here. She's going to hate this song. She's going to think it's so stupid. I don't even know if I want to play it now. And then uh, ended up playing it during the show, went up to her afterwards and said, hey, Grandma, did you like a show? You had fun? She said, oh, honey, you're a great, such a great singer, and I love your new songs. And that whole My Beer song is such a big hit. And I was like, ah, my grandma likes it. I think everybody's going to like it. So 
we released it to radio. And again, it was one of those songs where going back to what I was talking to you about earlier, where I remember what my moment was where I knew this song was going to be a big hit. And I was opening for Terry Clark at, uh, at uh, Dauphin's country music fest in Manitoba and Dauphin. And, uh, we had just played, uh, we were going to come back with big wheel and then we were going to teach the crowd. We did, we, we rehearsed this so long that we were going to teach the crowd how to sing, hold my beer because we just assumed they wouldn't know it. And, uh, so we played big wheel at the start. Actually the, we played the last song, which was uh, new frontier of the set went off hoping for an encore and thinking, you know, we just get the crowd. Yeah. Come on back out, whatever. And Carmen, who was my tour manager at the time, Carmen Choney, she said, take out your earbuds. So I had these earbuds in. She said, you got to hear this. So I pulled out my earbuds and all I could hear was the crowd going, oh, my bear. Oh, my bear. Oh, my. And it's never been the same since every show that we do. Everybody does that chance at the end. Hold my beer. And that was the moment where I was like, we're on to something. <laughs> That single was about five weeks old at that time because Dauphin Country Fest, for people who don't know, happens on July long weekend. The yeah. single was released at the end of May to make it a big summer single. So, you know, the fact that it had that level of resonance and impact that early is just, again, it's something you can't orchestrate or calculate. It just happens organically. And it certainly yep. did with that song. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just it. It was relatable. And everybody got a kick out of it. They knew it was a, you know, a tongue-in-cheek song. And it was something they could sing along to. And I always say with Hold My Beer, it's a nursery rhyme. You, you, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb is stuck in your head for the rest of your life. Yeah. Because it's one of those songs. It's just, it's an airworm. And it's a nursery rhyme. Basically, it's Hold My Beer. <laughs> look at, I mean, look, even Post Malone's got it in his head. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's stuck in his brain. Um, yeah. Well, super cool, man. Thanks for coming on. This was great. Um, pleasure. Loved having you on and would love to have you on again. And we got to talk about that book next time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for the great questions, too. That was awesome. Okay. Thanks, brother. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Jimmy. Take you care. bet. Bye. See you, buddy. Now, what a beautiful soul that guy is. Such a pleasure having him on the podcast. Big thank you to Aaron Prochette. And a reminder to all of you to make sure you stream or download Aaron Prochette's new single, Never seen me like this before, which is also um, at Canadian Radio, so please feel free to request it. Um, next week on the podcast, we're going to have my buddy Sean Bacon on from Dynamic Shift Consulting. Now, Sean is a former military veteran. He's a mental health toughness expert and coach. He flies all over the world to educate and arm folks with habits and rituals to strengthen their mental health. And uh, I feel like his message is going to be more timely than ever. So make sure you tune in for it next Monday. 